0: This series of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day is sponsored by T-Tulia. My favourite new bar in London's Covent Garden. It's actually a tea bar where you can also buy great organic teas. As something of a green tea snob myself, I have to say their jasmine has become a cupboard staple in my house this year. More importantly, they sell tea cocktails made with infusions from their tea, which are very delicious and, I might add, very, very strong. There are books for sale too, with selections by Tilda Swinton, John Hamm, Lionel Shriver, and, well, me. I picked 10 books that have been important to me, and the whole list is for sale now. They also have an excellent online shop and are giving 20% off everything to you lovely listeners. Just go to tituliabar.com, that's T-E-A-T-U-L-I-A-B-A-R.com, and enter how to fail, all one word, at checkout. Thank you very much to Titulia. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. So, this is a very special episode. Just over a year ago, I launched a podcast. The idea was to have vulnerable and honest conversations with people about the things that hadn't gone right. I DM'd a hummus company on Twitter for sponsorship I sold my wedding dress on eBay to get the funds to hire a producer, and then I asked people I knew to be my interviewees. My first ever guest on the podcast that would become How to Fail with Elizabeth Day was none other than my dear and generous friend, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. At the time we spoke, she had just wrapped filming on a Star Wars movie. The first series of Fleabag had aired, and she was hard at work on the second and a TV drama she had written and exec produced called Killing Eve was about to air. Since then, Phoebe has become one of the most phenomenally successful women on the planet. Killing Eve won three BAFTAs and was praised in Rolling Stone for undermining every rule of TV and for being hilarious, bloody, unclassifiable. Fleabag Season 2 was universally acclaimed as a masterpiece and single-handedly made the entire Catholic Church question its commitment to priestly celibacy. Her off-Broadway one-woman show ran to rave reviews and was watched by everyone from Hillary Clinton to Nicole Kidman. Now she's writing on the new James Bond film, bringing her caustic feminist wit to 007's historically retrograde attitude to women. But what has life been like for her behind these extraordinary successes? After all, this is a podcast about what happens when you scratch the surface of achievement. It's about the moments of vulnerability, of sadness, and yes, of failure, that don't always get the airplay. What has she learned from those moments when things didn't go according to plan, when success didn't always feel like it should? And that's why I'm barely coherent with excitement to welcome back my most downloaded podcast podcast... (laughs) almost got there. And that's why I'm barely coherent with excitement to welcome back my most downloaded podcast guest of all time, the one, the only, the dazzling Phoebe Waller-Bridge.
1: Phoebe! (laughs) Yeah Elizabeth! You're back!
0: (laughs) Thank you. How has it been? What have you been up to? <laughs> Haven't heard much from you lately. This sound quite exhausting when you read it out on the page
1: like that. Yeah. It's been pretty um pretty great. Pretty intense and great since we last spoke. Have you been getting enough sleep? No. No. <laughs> but then no, not really. Although last night I slept for like thirteen hours. I say night. No, yeah. Yeah. It just happened. You know, sometimes when it happens when your body like puts you to sleep to get some other shit done that that you don't know about. So that's what happened last night.
0: And what is it like genuinely when you hear me read out an introduction like that and you look back on what the last 12 months have contained? Because it is literally almost exactly a year ago since we met (laughs) last to do this podcast.
1: Yeah, I suppose when you read it out, it does. And also because I've heard your podcast so many times, and every time you're reading out people's achievements, I'm always like, "Oh my god!" Like that's extraordinary. <laughs> Everything Yeah, mine. it's like it just sounds silly. I don't know. Like there'll always be a surreal element that someone will be reading out your past twelve months, and I guess leaving out the bits in between that we're going to talk about, which is that like Killing Eve came out, and that was such a huge and exciting. Thing And it had, had such an impact on, on my life. But then the process of making that thing was a whole other experience in its own. So it's always like when it's always compressed into just this happened and this happened and this happened. It's actually very rare that I see the year like that. Because I suppose from everyone else's point of view, it's when it comes out. But from my point of view, it's all the work it takes to get it there. And then that's the end of the job. And uh, other people see it as the beginning when it comes out. Does this make any sense? It makes total sense.
0: And actually, as you're talking, I'm remembering that when we first met in 2014, you were writing scripts and you were like, oh, I'm sort of adapting these spy novels. And Mm. it was a very long process of lots of... There was rejection along the way before it became Mm. Killing Eve.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It was turned down sort of by everybody, actually. All the channels in this country I thought it was a goner, and we thought it was a goner, the production company, and then they sent it to BBC America, who just very simply just went, and with all the complicated notes you get back and the reasons that people don't want it, or it might not fit on their channel, that kind of stuff, they just came back to us and just said, great, and like that was it, they were like, we love it, and just said like, go for it. So also sometimes you think something is gone, and, and I really did with that, and then suddenly it just, obviously the producers were working hard behind the scenes to get it away, but then suddenly something that I thought I would never return to becomes the biggest thing in my life.
0: One of the many, many things that I love about Killing Eve and actually about Fleabag as well is that you never explain a character's sexuality. It Mm. is there and it is what it is. And I Mm. think that that's particularly revolutionary when it comes to women and Mm. female characters. Is that something that you set out to do or it just comes to you naturally? I think it comes to me naturally, and then once it's there, it's really
1: important to me to protect that and not to wave a flag or have any kind of smuggery around any choices around that sort of thing. Or allow it to be an event. I just want the characters to feel completely truthful and surprising. And they're not thinking about it. Villanelle's not thinking day in, day out about the fact that she's bisexual. She's just shagging who she wants. (laughs) I I think that feels more natural. And also for me, it's just trying to represent a relationship between those two particular women that I do recognise in in real life that women do interact romantically, erotically, like professionally and sexually in ways that every day, all the time, in ways that we just so rarely see on TV. And I like that they, we play it as a non-event in the TV show, which then makes it a bigger thing rather than there's the bisexual character or mm. you know. And I suppose Eve's fascination with Villanelle as well was just not having to explain what that was, just letting us discover it with Eve, that she's discovering her sexuality and her obsession. It's not being pointed at.
0: Yeah. Now, you've casually walked into my flat with a water bottle that I've just <laughs> noticed. Oh no. <laughs> has the 007 logo on it, and a little name sticker saying Phoebe Waller-Bridge above. (laughs) Bond 25. Okay,
1: this sounds like I'm walking around (laughs) with my 007 badge on. I'm not. This actual physical water bottle is the best water bottle I have ever had. Why? Water bottles always like leak. I'm not, especially when you're giving them on production. You can ask Jenny Robbins, who's been my story producer on, um, on like, Fleabag and Killing Eve, who's also working on Bond. We both were given this water bottle and we both had a total freak out about how amazing it is. It not only just has a push down lid, but then it screws as well, like just on the little um, knobble bit at the top. Got it, yes. But it never leaks. The screw bit is just really satisfying. It's got this little clip that you can put on your belt and it's just very sturdy. The colour's cool. It's like a light kind of grey. I cannot get over. The The actual design of the water bottle. And the annoying thing is is there's no branding on the actual bottle. (laughs) Honestly, Jenny and I have been looking, so we don't know where to get it. It's just one of these mysterious things. It's just the 007 water bottle is the best water
0: bottle. But is that just for... Cast and crew, you can't... I don't think you can buy No, that. you can't okay. buy that, no, yeah. It's not like the Love Island water bottle, which is my other favourite model. <laughs> oh, yes, you can buy this. They should,
1: I mean, that's the thing. They Actually, do you have that here? No. <laughs> we'll we'll that afterwards. But yeah, of all the excitement and everything, suddenly we went into our office and there was just... A water bottle there, and that's when we really lost our minds.
0: You're like, forget Daniel Craig. I've met this water, bottle. It's just, <laughs> it's just water the best bottle. Water bottle.
1: It's just so satisfying the shape of it, and it just it's just I've never carried a water bottle from set around with me in real life ever in my life, other than this one. And it looks like it's because it says double A7 on it, but it's not,
0: it's because it's an excellent, excellently shaped okay. bottle. I promise You'll I'm gonna probably get on cut that bit out. <laughs> no, never. I promise I'm gonna get onto your failures in a minute, but I've got one more question, which is. It has been extraordinary, the overwhelming acclaim. I can't remember something in my lifetime that has got the acclaim that Fleabag specifically got for the second season. And I wonder what it's like to carry that weight, (laughs) because you're now almost universally heralded as the voice of your generation. (laughs) And people come up to you on the street and say, I am Fleabag, and this meant so much to me. How do you cope with the weight of that? Maybe you try not to think about it and I've I've ruined that for you now. <laughs> <laughs> um, it doesn't feel like that heavy, actually. It doesn't feel like
1: weight. I think there was something about this season of Fleabag that I feel slightly disconnected from in a lovely way. It feels like it had another thing, like it took on another energy. We could slightly feel it on set. We were all just sort of like, what is this? There was something a bit mystical about the energy between all the actors and a director. and just Everybody there was just operating on such a emotional level Mm. everybody cared so much about the story that it felt like it was all of ours and it really really does still feel like that honestly and it sounds really corny but I feel like every single person on that set gave a little tiny part of their heart to that show and I think you can really feel that so when I was watching it and when the reviews were coming in and when people were talking about it we were all talking like oh my gosh we all felt that there was something special so it's actually a, a light feeling you're just sort of like oh it was special what we all did.
0: And do you feel understood in a way? Because something that I keep coming back to on this podcast is the idea that when we are open about our vulnerabilities and what we perceive as our weirdness, actually, that's the biggest source of connection with other people. And did you feel that with Fleabag? I did massively with the play and the first
1: series, particularly because that was such a specific type of humour and such a specific type of insight into a cynicism and a kind of brokenness that I'd felt in my twenties and that a lot of my friends did, and that feeling of not being so alone because what was written felt it was raw. I could recognise it was raw and truthful to me and to our team and Vicky, you know, who directed the play, and and so when that went out and people responded, that was like oh, oh, we're all going through that. (laughs) We're all going through that, or have gone through that, or can touch on that. But this series, I think, again, because it was love, the thing that felt so heartwarming about it was that how much people wanted to see a story about love, because that's what I really felt like I wanted to see, a romantic love story, but also not about families like breaking up or breaking down anymore. It's like the attempt to connect, the attempt to love, whereas in the last series, I think she couldn't love, and she'd been so burnt by loving a friend and then fucking it up. And that I think love was just so held, which is in this one, it was putting it out there. And I felt like that was really moving about the response is that people do want to love each other and they want to watch shows about love.
0: That's so beautiful. <laughs> I do remember watching the final episode of Fleabag Ever and being in floods of tears and sending you a video message just of me crying, just yes. of me being like, how dare you make me cry this much? Yes. the fox Thank you. The saying goodbye <laughs> the fox. it was amazing oh,
1: i know and there's actually takes of andrew and i when we first did that scene we were both in floods and also not in a way that we were like building up to the scene and it was none of that bullshit because it was so last minute the road was so noisy we didn't have any time to shoot that scene and i knew it was the most important scene we all knew it was the most important thing we were like oh god and it was like we'd be talking and suddenly a boss would be like Nargh! and they'd be like stop go again so we just sort of got there and I like, okay, sit down blah, blah, and they just went, go. And so I hadn't felt like I was emotionally prepared for the scene anyway. I was like, oh, damn, it's not going to go as well as I thought. And sat down and just did that scene with Andrew. We both just literally in floods. And there were about two takes that we can't really use because we were just like, <laughs> and also, I mean, any scene with Andrew, you just end up sort of crying in any way because he's so <laughs> truthful. <laughs> Even like
0: the lighthearted ones, you're just like,
1: oh my God, there's man. Yeah, it's honestly that sense of something other happening
0: in it. Oh, I'd love there to be a DVD of outtakes. A DVD, like I'm from, (laughs) sorry, 1995. You specifically want a DVD? (laughs) Yes, just for me. Um, Yeah,
1: it's really funny, though, stuff like that, because that was the hardest scene to edit because it felt there was potential for it to be really amazing. But if we lost the rhythm or the beat or the emotional journey for one second, then we'd lose the, I don't know, the power of it. And also... Andrew came to set that day, determined to say "I love you too," because it was a it was an option. I wasn't sure if the character said "I love you too" at the end, and so it was just meant to be "I love you." It'll pass, and then the and then go. And I sort of wasn't sure if he should say "I love you too." And Andrew came in. He was like, "I'm saying it," and he's basically like, "I'm not giving you another option because I have to say it." And you know, when an actor feels that strongly about something, they'll be right. Especially for someone like Andrew, you know, and he had huge input to the whole thing, but. And I think actually that's the clincher of the whole thing is that he says it. He was so right. And uh, I have him to thank for that.
0: Was it a real fox? (laughs) Did you have a real trained fox? No, we
1: tried with a real fox. (laughs) This was the funniest thing. There was like two foxes turned up and they were called like buttercup and Tinkerwinker or something and they turned up and it was so funny because again middle of the night a really loud street and everyone was like we've got to be really careful with these foxes we can't spook them and uh, what we'd realized is that like urban foxes are like that because they've been fucking living in they've london they've been on the streets they've been on the streets for ages, and they've got that swag these two little foxes have been brought up in you know henley like by the <laughs> river and, and i saw them so then they came out and they were just like what the fuck is this and they- there were two of them tiny and they were in there and you're not going to believe this They <laughs> lay, lay down and then the handler came up to me and she was like so Tinkerbell doesn't like people and Buttercup doesn't like any kind of loud environment so either way we're fucked <laughs> You're <laughs> like, okay. And they're like, the only way we can uh, make this happen is if we play Coldplay very, very, uh, very loudly into the street. And if nobody else can move. So there's a really surreal moment when everyone had to step back. The whole crew step back. The director, everybody had to step back. And then me sat alone because that's when the box comes. And then they open this thing and then they put on a little radio. And Coldplay starts playing <laughs> And then they open the thing and this tiny, terrified little fox just going, what the fuck, 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 fuck?" comes out and then just skids around for ages. We did that for about 20 minutes. Ah. And then we went back to look at the footage and it was, I mean, it was just too funny. There was literally, it went everywhere except for in front of the camera. And uh, and so then we got the CGI fox in the end.
0: Oh my God. Was it like Coldplay Fix You or something?
1: It (laughs) It was. God, I wish I could remember what it was. I think it might have been Fix You. And it was Coldplay. Like they just love Coldplay and it calms them down. But obviously, I mean, it must have been a terrifying experience for those foxes. (laughs) (laughs) But they didn't really have the cool swag that we needed. Oh
0: my gosh. Okay, so failure to find a fox that would walk in front of you is not actually one one of your three failures. And these are failures that you have very kindly chosen from your last year. Because I do think that that's a really interesting thing to examine. Because for so many people listening to this podcast right now, you are the epitome of success and fame and brilliance. And I think it's really important that everyone realises that there is a journey to get there. And if you're not there right now, that's fine, because sometimes there are weird things that happen and you learn from them. So the first one is really interesting. It's about how you were actually in New York when Fleabag season two aired over here. Mm. And you felt disconnected from the people that you most loved. So tell us about that. Yeah, so I um, so the show was coming out. And also, like
1: I said before, you, you're you working so hard and then you, you finish the job and then it's done. Well, for me, it was done. The show was ready to go out and then it was just going to go out. Whereas for everybody else, it begins when the show goes out. And so we'd finished editing, it was all in the can, then went to New York to do the play, which was also an amazing experience. But then the show came out and I'd underestimated, as we all had, what impact the show was going to have and that people were going to want to talk about it so much and like it so much. And I was essentially just so far away from everybody and on a different time zone and doing the play, but working really hard. I was like writing during the day and doing the play during the night. It wasn't like a kind of like New York, baby, Broadway thing. It was more like just work at work. And I hadn't really connected with my family and my friends, my close friends and family, but particularly my family when it went out. So then they had this kind of strange explosion of this show happening that had so much to do with me and the work that i have been doing. And Izzo, my sister who'd written all the music for it, she was connected to it professionally as well, so she had a bit more ownership over it. But because it's about family and everything, this show, I think there was suddenly this really intense... My families have experienced a kind of intense focus from people in their lives and people asking about the show and asking about me. And I think one of my regrets is that I wish I'd seen that coming so that we could have just been a bit like this might be weird you never want to overestimate the success of something you've done so you don't want to say this is gonna be huge guys <laughs> so uh so let's hold hands and that- yeah. and I honestly didn't have that feeling either it was just like done this and off we go and also it changed my family's lives a tiny bit when Fleabag One first came out because suddenly there was a Wallabridge profile and and it's yeah. a distinctive surname. It's a distinctive surname. And everyone weathered that really brilliantly. And also people assume that, that it's based on my family and all that kind of stuff because it's about a family, which also is a whole other conversation because that's about, you know, how women can't write.
0: Oh, don't worry. We'll get on to oh, that. yeah, go, go, go. <laughs> yeah,
1: can. Women can make things up too. <laughs> it's not all,
0: you know, our diaries. Also because the show is called Fleabag, which is your family nickname. Yeah. So there's also this sense that The people who love you and know you are watching you on screen, but you physically, Phoebe, are thousands of miles away. So they can't see you as the real person. They see you on screen. And that must have been so weird. And by the way, no one, I don't think, could have anticipated the enormity of what was about to happen. Mm -hmm. Because it has been astonishing, deservedly so. But I don't think you should beat yourself up about that because you couldn't have known. And you would have sounded like the worst kind of hybrid of Mariah Carey and <laughs> um, Donald Trump. <laughs> like, guys, I'm a huge deal. And, um, but was yeah. that it? Was there a slight disconnect between your family seeing you on screen, but not seeing you in person? Yeah, so I think all this buzz was sort of happening back in London. And I was kind of in this apartment in New York.
1: And not around anyone who'd made the show or not around my family and all that kind of stuff. And I think they were actually taking the brunt of the profile of the show suddenly uh, getting bigger. Also, I wasn't there. So they were being asked all the questions about the show and they had no answers. Um, the time difference and everything just made it weird. Basically, there was just a communication breakdown with my family. Nothing really happened. But I just suddenly felt like I could have been braver with...
0: I know what you're saying because I think women specifically, just to <laughs> generalise horribly over gender, I'm, I'm not all women, but some women struggle with claiming their own power so we struggle with the idea that we can say I think what I've done is a really good piece of work and it might garner some acclaim and I want you to be prepared for that because it seems self-aggrandizing and we don't like that because we've been raised a certain way to like be modest and self-deprecating and always to slightly undermine ourselves and maybe it was that that you were feeling. Yeah definitely definitely some of that
1: you just don't know, do you? And you, you don't, don't want to tempt fate. Don't want to tempt fate, exactly. But also, I think when you're writing fiction and you're making art, <laughs> I'm just trying to train myself to use that word. I know, it and sounds i like, so and even when
0: you used it, you had to giggle. Yeah. <laughs> but you've made art. Phoebe. but I
1: feel like I feel like the difference in my head is now I'm tr- that's what I'm trying to do yeah. and so I feel like that's instead of just like oh, I'm writing a sitcom it's like yeah. no I think the ambition must always be to write something with artistic integrity and so I'm trying to train myself to use the word although whenever anyone else uses that word I'm like <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah when you're trying to make something artistic <laughs> when you're trying to make something artistic I certainly felt like a lot of what was personal to me had gone into that show. So I'd sort of like emotionally vomited so much of my insides and my life and my relationships in a kind of abstract way into that show. And it's incredibly personal for me. So I had been fortifying myself in the process of making it as well. Like I was aware that what I was doing was inviting people to see me in a very personal way. I was inviting people to watch this character and relate to her, whether they do or not, but that's the beckoning from her. But that's something I've controlled and I've created. And then so the people closest to me, like my family, they didn't necessarily invite that. Mm. And there's so much overfamiliarity that comes with that. And so I think people assuming that Iso is like Claire or is Claire. And that people would ask her, are you Claire? And she'd have to explain a million times, no, I'm not. And they were like, oh, did you shit in a sink? Was a lot, of the, was what she got a lot of the time in the first series. And also people just assuming that so much of it is true. And so that actually, that bleeds into my family's life when the show's going out. Because then they're, they weirdly are having to defend our family.
0: And to defend um, their own individuality, I well, guess.
1: yes. Yeah. And I think I'd underestimated that because what I know I'm writing is it's really personal to me. And of course I'm drawing on, on real life experiences and things and things that echo in real life through the things do echo through the show. But, you know, I write about my biggest fears. I write about losing my best friend or losing my mum, or not communicating with my dad or not getting on with his new partner. And, all those things are my worst fears But actually, you know, my mum's alive and well. My best friend is alive and well and we have an unbelievable relationship. My, my relationship with both my siblings is incredible. I get on really well with my stepmother and with my dad, but it's the what if. Yeah. And I think what people see when they watch it is the, um, oh, that must be it. And I just wish I'd had the foresight to sit my family down and gone, what I've done is really personal. It's not about you guys. There's a few degree of separation in other people's minds. Because it's so personal about family and because there are strange links, like I did have an ex-boyfriend with a motorbike or like my stepmother is actually an artist and all those sort of things. That I just wish I would had more responsibility and said to them, just managed to fortify them a bit more.
0: I think that is so beautifully expressed what you've just done there, because I think, again, that this is something that is very gendered in art creation. Is that the most pretentious sentence I've ever uttered? Possibly. No, no, really. That's what we're talking about. No, it's (laughs) not. It's it's very factual, the creation of art. I, as a female novelist, have often felt that when women write about families, it is always assumed that it is their family and that they don't have the intellectual imagination to make that cognitive leap into real fiction. Whereas when Jonathan Franzen does it, and don't get me wrong, I love Jonathan Franzen, but when he writes a family novel like The Corrections, it's seen as the state of the nation.
1: Oh, I just love how you speak.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> you. You,
1: when we were talking about this briefly before, um, when you said that, it was like, that's exactly the point. And actually, probably, that's why I assumed that it wouldn't be seen like that. And people wouldn't assume that of my family. And maybe it is a gendered thing. Maybe they do. Like I say, it's a strange thing because nothing actually happened. It was just this underlying sense of, oh, gosh, I wish I'd taken better care. Because they're actually fielding things that I was completely unaware of. Like people coming up to my siblings and my parents all the time being like, is this true? What's this about? Is this, you know, is this you guys? And I just really felt for them.
0: Do you think that that
1: would have happened were you a man? I don't know. I I really, really don't know. There's just no way of knowing. It might be to do with the fact that I'm a woman, but also, but it also might not be. I feel like in terms of how the show has that kind of autobiographical assumption, it's something that I'm asked about a lot, and I, I'm also asked if I think that happens a lot because I'm a woman. Sorry, I, it's a really boring question. No, but it's not because it's a really interesting question, and it's uh, you know it's one I wanted to talk about with you as well because either it's the show feels so raw and real that that's why people think mm. it's real or it's because people assume that there's a limit to a woman's imagination. <laughs> I think I'd always rather believe the former. <laughs> yeah. But I do have a suspicion, but I don't know.
0: To be fair, I think that the former is true of you, because Fleabag and Killing Eve, as that critic from Rolling Stone so brilliantly put it, like they defy all conventional genre, not only in terms of the TV that you're writing, but the characters that you're writing and the way that they are. But I think what's interesting about that is that you don't define yourself in a particularly female or a particularly male way, I don't think, as yeah. a writer.
1: No, not at all. I don't think of myself in that way at all. I'm aware of it yeah, because of where I'm positioned in the industry, but I know that my work will never pander to that. In fact, the opposite. And I think that's part of the fun. It's part of the game. <laughs> because yeah. once you know what box you're going to... And people do. I understand why people want to put people in boxes because it's that's how we understand people and it's how we can immediately feel like we know who they are and what's safe about them.
0: It's interesting what you were saying about how there are certain things that come from your insides, (laughs) as it were, but you warp them to an nth degree. So actually it feels like a lot of the characters in Fleabag are aspects of you yeah. rather than based on real people. And I have had the great good fortune of meeting and getting to know your sister and she is nothing like Claire. But the bit that I think a lot of people related to and thought was so beautiful was the bit where Claire saying that she would run through an airport for yeah. Fleabag. Because it's this p- and actually what you're doing there is a pee to love and to family connection. Yeah. And actually that summing up,
1: the whole feeling that you have, which is whatever happens, you're the person that I, I will always love you to a degree that no one else will ever understand. Mm. And that and actually just forgetting to say that, <laughs> can actually remembering to say that is a big part of families and siblinghood, I think. We take for granted that you're there for each other if you're lucky enough to have family that that is there for you and that you sometimes just need to say it and the power of that. But then again, I'm writing that and it just came out like, nah, I didn't. <laughs> but I'm writing that episode and I'm very very last minute writer in like in a kind of panic last minute way so I'm writing all that stuff and I'm not feeling like that the fact that that line had such an impact and then it makes me go back and look at it again and go oh my god yes that's yeah. of course that's a big moment but I wasn't writing going and then Claire says I love you in her own words to flee back <laughs> like it doesn't feel as structurally sort of like contrived as that but then and I love that and love seeing that people were saying that they were texting their sisters that and stuff mm. afterwards. But there's so much that, I mean, Izzo and I, when we were watching the episodes together, and Izo wrote the music for the show, and so there's a lot of her insights in this show as well. The music I mean, is utterly fantastic. It's just insane. Mm. And again, I get a lot of the heat around the success of the show. Of course I do, because, you know, I'm writing and I'm in it. But the process of there being an episode and it's not working and it's not working and everyone knows it's not working and I've got this genius editor, Gary Dolan, I've got Harry and Jenny Robbins, story producer, and Harry Brabler, the uh, director, and we're all in the room we can't make it work and we can't make it work we don't know what's happening. There were so many dark moments in the edit we're like, it's not working. And then Izzo will deliver some music and we'll put the music over these two scenes and suddenly it will make sense. And that happens so many times with this show. And Izzo, you know, I knew that I wanted something really massive and choral and it to feel epic because it's a small story. It's about a couple of people in the world, but to them, it's epic. And I love that feeling of making something feel big for the characters, even though we're acknowledging that the characters are just a bunch of middle class people in London somewhere. But for them, they're in their own Greek tragedy. And so when we first, when I was talking to Izzo about it and said, can you write some music? And then like big choral stuff. And the references I was giving her were like an orchestra of like 120 and she has the budget for like six people. <laughs> so I was like, can it be like that? And she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then she went away and she did it. And she was using these six incredible singers. But then when she brought the music back, and this was an amazing thing and ties into the whole, there's something other about it, she brought the music back and we were putting it over the first episode and we were thinking something's not working something's not working it's just not clicking so we put that in the bin which is actually a storage place uh, on our editor's computer rather than an actual bin he puts it in like Izzo's bin and then she started writing more music for the first episode and then as we got later down the series and we were editing it and this scene wasn't working and it was episode four and five things weren't working and Gary just took out what Izzo had written for the first episode and put it on the final episodes and it worked her compositions fit perfectly to the cut that he'd done before any work had been done, either to her composition or his edit. And it was this really spooky moment of she'd written the end at the beginning. And she, then she didn't need to write any more because she'd already written the entire show, but just backwards. Wow. And then we realised that so it was already there. And the age of the singers gets older through the series, and they're actually using young boys at the beginning and then adult singers by the end. And then we weirdly, it's only after we realise that that's, it's a show of, you know, it's about maturing. It's a coming of age story. And she did that with the music, which was which was amazing. But yeah, but there's like loads of dynamics between me and Izzo in it. And actually there was one night when we were talking about the music and we were back, we lived together and we were staying up late and... I mean, Sean Clifford's performance is so amazing and we just love watching it so much. But then we did have to watch through one episode together and we were just pissing each other going, that's us, that's us, that's us, that's us, that's us.
0: That's us. Am I right in thinking, so the episode where Claire gets a terrible haircut, <laughs> didn't that happen to you? Yes, yes. do you remember? Yes. <laughs> and I remember you, didn't you call your your mum and Izzo and Izzo was like, it's really, this is really bad. It's really, like she was talking to your mum and being like, we really need to take this very seriously because... <laughs> It is a massive issue. Tell us what happened. <laughs> I can't believe you remember. It. I uh,
1: got a haircut before the first series of Fleabag, and it ends up becoming like the Fleabag
0: haircut. Yeah, like, because in God. Crashing, which by the way, if you haven't watched Crashing, you must watch Crashing. The second episode of Crashing is one of the funniest things I've ever seen on TV. But you had really long hair. I've just remembered that was hair extensions. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I'd done, but I'd I'm made very it. observant. <laughs> <I>
1: made- <laughs> You are, but I've made the pilot flea bag just before I made crashing, and so I also have to make the pilot flea bag, then make crashing, and then go back through the rest of the series. So I wanted to have a different look between the two shows, and I also just wanted to have locks for a time in life. Although it's basically like carrying around a pony on your head, like yeah. you have to like,
0: and you can't run your hands through it. Can no, you? and it's really really
1: itchy <laughs> and heavy. And
0: um,
1: but then when when someone does it all nice for you, then yeah. it's your Beyonce. <laughs> if you probably noticed in crashing, <laughs> that's the person that came to mind when you saw my. My look. But yeah, I so then I got a new haircut for Fleabag and I thought it was too short. And also I think I was just having my period and I was just like in the middle of it and was the stress of the show about to start filming and I hadn't finished the scripts and all that kind of stuff. And then I got a haircut <laughs> on top of everything else. <laughs> And I was like, I remember being in like floods, like absolute floods of tears. And I called Izzo, and I was like, I'm oh like oh literally like the focal thing. I was like, Well, my fucking life is over and I'm about to go and do this show and I'm gonna tell And she was so amazing. She just went and she was like she took me so seriously, and I'll never forget it, this is one of those airport moments because she took me so seriously. She was like, Okay, listen, where are you? And I was like, I'm at my flat, I'm never leaving my flat again, it's so sure. And then she was like, I'm coming over. And she came over because of my bad haircut. And she's in the doorbell rings she's there. And then she looks at me and she was like, Oh, darling. I was like, Don't say it looks nice. And she's like, It does. And it's just one of those moments. And then she sat with me and we worked it out. And we kind of, it was just one of those moments of sisterly and loyalty and love that I've never forgotten. And it's just so funny because then the next day, I'm like, totally fine. And then, <laughs> and then I see, like, <laughs> and I see friends, and they're like, I oh, you got your haircut. I'm like, Yeah, yeah, do you like it? It's <laughs> like the madness. But it does show, I think that it shows the stakes around hair and stuff. I think that's where the idea came from for Hair is Everything because the stakes around that stuff are stupid high. They are. And it's like, why do we care? Why do we care that much? And it just feels like it's so deep in us that, you know, all that image stuff and everything. But, but it is also just great material. <sighs>
0: Your second failure is, I think, something that people will find surprising if they only know you through the incredibly strong and complicated characters that you create, which is your tendency to people-please in specific instances related to work. So tell us about that. Yeah,
1: I feel like it's the part of myself that drives me most crazy. and We've talked about it a lot, and actually... I don't know. I feel like I've spoken to a lot of women about it. But just what would happen if I'm not just the nicest person in the room all the time? It seems like cataclysmic. (laughs) And I know that's insane. Or maybe it's not, actually. But the characters, you know, I've said in another interview that I write characters that don't care about that because I'm teaching myself how to be one. And it's not really not giving, like not caring what you think. It's not caring about the consequences of speaking their mind or doing the thing that they believe is the right thing or just following their own instinct. If that's met with people disagreeing with them, that they don't mind. And when it comes to my actual on-the-ground work, like the actual writing and making of a thing, I can fight and fight and fight for something because it's very specific. I'm fighting for the art, shall (laughs) we say. But it's all the politics in between it... I still feel completely handcuffed by a politeness. And not that politeness isn't a good thing, but I think it can be a yoke around your neck when it's the thing that gets in between you and saying what you really want to say. I don't ever want to be a genuine nightmare to people, and I don't think I would ever be. But I think knowing the difference between not caring about people saying that you're difficult when you know you haven't been. Actually, during Killing Eve, I actually had a sort of physical reaction to the pressure that I was under. I was sort of shaking and I basically almost passed out in one of the offices one day and had to get picked up and go to a doctor.
0: It sounds to me as if the Killing E thing, you were also very grateful that BBC America was taking this chance and other people had rejected it and suddenly you're going from Fleabag, which was very much a one-woman thing, to something where you're heading up a writer's room and there are lots of different opinions all at once and that must have been incredibly stressful do you think you've got better at it because of that salutary experience where what you were doing in your mind had such a massive knock-on effect to your physical self
1: I do I felt like I hit the edges of something during Killing Eve and also because I was filming Star Wars at the same time and you feel so lucky so you do push yourself I also probably should have said I need to take a week because I can't think straight because I'm so tired but unless you really demand that, no one's really gonna mm. say that for you, because everyone's just like, "Should be fine, get on with it." And even if they did, which they did, you know, a little bit, I'd say, "No, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine," because the tankard's moving forward. So I felt like you just had to, I had to keep going. I got better on it. With Fleabag, I think. But then I was still having, like... I was still so tired. I was still having, like, shakes and stuff. The final take of that, I was so, so, so tired. I do work myself to the ground, is what... And I'm really, really hard on myself when I'm doing it. And I feel like that's because I care so, so much about getting it right and getting it really, really good. But I also think sometimes you need to give yourself the permission to stop. And I didn't stop because I didn't want to let people down.
0: God, oh. But you also need to give yourself permission to stop because being creative can't come when you're frazzled and adrenalised and not thinking straight. You need to have a period of rest.
1: Mm. Although sometimes I get scared that my most creative stuff comes when I'm that frazzled. That's so interesting, really. (laughs) But I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's true. But I do feel I'm so self-critical when I'm writing. So if I'm like, Woke up at 10, a cup of coffee, went for a jog, sat down. I'll write three sentences and I'll be like, this is a part of shit. Yeah. Whereas if my deadline was two days ago and I've got a whole load of ideas that I've already chucked out and then I have to do something really quickly, I can't judge it so much. Then I'll send that off easier. It's a very, very strange process because I get so much energy from it. And yet I have no structure to my creative process at all.
0: Do you still write in bed?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the time, particularly with Fleabag 2, I was rewriting on the set so much. And that, I mean, it was so crazy for the actors because I was so lucky to have those actors who already knew their characters so well and have such great instincts. Like Brett Gelman, I wrote his final speech in episode six in the car between the unit base and the set. I just was like, I'm really sorry I've just got to rewrite it cause it doesn't, weirdly it felt more like The original speech felt more like a fleabag speech than a Martin speech. So I quickly rewrote it in the car and he had loads of input into it and it was brilliant. But when I say I'm last minute, I mean, it did get to extremes with that. But then sometimes the good stuff does just come out there and I think I need to work out. So the next process I'm going to go through is not have any deadlines, not take any other jobs on. I'm going to write on spec now and see if I actually get anything written or if I need a
0: deadline. That's exciting. Yeah. How do you cope now with knowing when you need help. I mean, what's your relationship like with anxiety and nervous exhaustion and handling that? And do you have therapy? Do you have strategies that are going for a run? <laughs> what, how do you cope? Um,
1: I don't really like taking things. I don't go to therapy. I have Jenny Robbins, i think is my i think is my way out of the madness who is, was a story producer on killing eve who was brought on by the producers and br- i mean such a brilliant move because you know there was so much to do and we were already a team of sort of six or seven people that the scripts had to go through. So I'd write something and then I'd be speaking to like four or five people. But they all had these other jobs as well. So they were like, we're going to bring one more person on. And I was like, you're not bringing another person on. I cannot deal with one more person. And they were like, no, no, no. And I remember Sally, who's the exec on it, just saying like, just speak to Jenny. She's a miracle worker. So I got on the phone And it was, honestly, it was love at first voice. I've never experienced it before in my life. (laughs) I called her up and I was like, I've got to speak to this person who's going to come on and be like another voice in the room. And from that moment on, in 10 minutes on the phone, she'd already sorted out two of the major plot problems. And this is just when we were introducing each other to each other. And she came on board and she has got such a rigorous story mind And also such a brilliant sense of humour. And that is always the way out. And, you know, I had the same thing with Vicky, who's now writing her own show, HBO, you know, with Jenny as well. Jenny's story producing on that as well. And Jenny's just become the heart of Dry Write and all the work that we do. Because the more stressful things get, the more Jenny laughs. And not really at a situation, but with it. And I think, actually, that's so rare. You know, there was one brilliant producer at Sid Gentle called Henrietta Colvin, And she just would every now and again just text me and say, it's only telly. It's only telly. It's only telly. And um, Jenny has that. So really, it's calling Jenny. (laughs)
0: It's calling Jenny. It's laughter and
1: keeping things in perspective. Yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. And knowing that it's in you. There's something quite comforting about knowing that there is a deadline and it will happen. This thing is going to happen. And you've just got to keep pouring whatever you can into it. And just know that you've got a good team around you. And I always need my like my partner in crime, that I can bounce things off. And actually when Vicky's career as a writer started taking off, all the euphoria of that around both of us, it meant that neither of us could be there for each other, to be each other's sounding board as much, because we were both working on our own independent things. And we honestly never thought we'd ever find anybody that could do what we would do for each other. And we're still in each other's processes, but it's people like Jenny that just people just don't know about Jenny's, mm. and I suppose there is only really one Jenny they do know they do now they know about Jenny and but and also whenever anyone else meets Jenny, they're always like, "Can I have Jenny?
0: <laughs> like, I no. love I love Jenny because I've never met her, but she said some nice things about some interviews that I've written, so oh, I yes. like massively she loves pro you. her <laughs> she loves you yeah,
1: but she um yeah she's she's just got the clearest mind and such a strong instinct and really keeps everything grounded and moving while keeping it really fun. And that's the most important thing. God, honestly, that's the most important thing. It's keeping it fun.
0: I said that Fleabag was universally acclaimed and it absolutely was because the one time anyone tried to say one thing (laughs) against it, which was that it was a bit middle class, there was just this outpouring (laughs) on social media saying, how dare you? How dare you say that about Fleabag? But I'd really like to address that, the Mm. question of privilege. What is your reaction when people say, oh, you're just so privileged. I understand that it comes from a point of
1: view of opportunity. It feels like lack of opportunity is the thing that drives that. When people feel like I would never have had the opportunity to make my flea bag if I hadn't been in the position that Phoebe Waterbridge is in, which is absolutely probably true that loads of people don't. And I think if that's where it comes from, then I'm I'm really sympathetic to that feeling. But when it's about the actual work and about the actual words on the page and the writing and stuff, and it's a criticism of that, then I take umbrage because that's about a craft and a story that's being told. And to criticise a story on the basis of where the author had come from or how privileged the author is undermines the story. I've never pretended that I'm not um, from a privileged position. I really know that I am. I mean, my God. I've had not only from the point of view that, you know, I got to go to nice schools and live in London, but I've also had the love and support of my family. I mean, I was perfectly set up to have success in the world. But then I also then from that point had to really, really work for it. And it's not like my privilege created fleabag. I created fleabag, but from a point of place in my life where I was able to sit and write mm-hmm. and I was able to take the time. I was around people who could support that. And the work itself is not a product of that, I think. It's a product of whoever I... And I like to think that whatever life I'd lived, wherever I'd been born or brought up, I would still have written if I'd been given the encouragement. And actually, that's the thing that I care about, is encouraging people to do it. I suppose some of the criticism is that it was just for posh girls, right? That it was just it's just for posh girls. And what I loved is that people were sending me photos of tweets, friends of mine, saying... Uh, like There was one guy who was like... I'm a disabled 42-year-old man living in Hull and I am Fleabag. And it was like, yes, mate! (laughs) Because that's that's always what I'm striving for. It's just so that people feel like it's a human story, blah, blah, blah. But it was told through the prism of a very middle-class family. And I was very aware of that when I was writing it. I was using them to tell a story that was emotional.
0: And I think you were also using them to tell stories that were, by their nature, universal and sometimes given a lack of attention, And one of the things I'd love to talk to you about is the miscarriage scene. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. (laughs) That opens the first episode of season two of Fleabag. And the reason I felt particularly personally connected to it is because I had a phone call from you a few months before the screening saying, I'm really sorry if I've done this but I think I've taken a story of your miscarriage and put it in Fleabag and the story of my miscarriage is that I started miscarrying at three months in a restaurant toilet although it was over brunch and not over dinner and I was actually incredibly honoured and so happy that you were taking that and using it and giving it a platform that was necessary and when I watched that scene and it was this screening at the BFI and I felt really emotional, but in all of the best ways, because that is a story that doesn't get told enough. Mm. And I want to yeah. thank you for doing it.
1: Well, it wouldn't be there if you hadn't told me that story. I <laughs> know, <laughs> Getting emotional. Yeah. It wouldn't be there if you hadn't told me that story. And also I felt when it came out in the writing process and then suddenly realising because, you know, we absorb so much stuff as a writer, you know. When you told me that story, I think it was a couple of years previously, it had had such an impact on me because of what you'd done afterwards, which was sit back down. Yeah. And the fact that you'd gone, oh, this is, I don't want my miscarriage to inconvenience somebody
0: else. <laughs> yeah, talk about people pleasing.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's In fact, that is the, the purest form of it I'd ever heard. And it was so female as well. A miscarriage, a story of a miscarriage getting in the way of somebody else's brunch, your miscarriage getting someone else's brunch or meeting. I absorbed that story on like a cellular level, I think, and was so moved by the way you told it. And then when we were writing, you know, when I was with the flea bag people were just talking about all these ideas. And, and I remember thinking about that story and thinking, what if this happens? And, da, 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 and then realising that it had and it was you and then calling you and feeling like I was taking something from you. I was scared that mm. it was, I was taking something from your life and calling you and saying it's come out of this story and it was you it's totally you it's totally been inspired by you and oh my god well, and i never forget you just saying brilliant <laughs> take it yeah. tell the story like and that kind of generosity of spirit there as well and it not being people being so obsessively private about their own experiences which i understand why but i am as well everybody is but the bravery you have and not only in by doing this podcast but in everything that you write and every column that you write in and in your book and when you said that the moment you started talking honestly people started responding in a louder hungrier way for your work and so just the fact that you'd said yes please 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 use it and it made me feel even more empowered by it because I think I felt a little bit of shame and guilt when I realized that it was your story and so when I phoned you it was just like
0: like oh god I'm sorry and you're like why are you apologizing? <laughs> it was so lovely of you even to call me and I, I just sort of think your role is as this sort of truth teller through your stories and I and so much of what you did, specifically in the second series of Fleabag, was about a woman's reclamation of the mm-hmm. shit they have to go through. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yes, and what we don't see. You know, what we don't see. And I just wanna just show it. Oh, you know. God, it, God, it gives me so much energy writing that stuff like you know when you've got something truthful and that's unusual that you see and again it's that thing of not waving a flag around it because I honestly think watching people fight is the most compelling thing in the world and we watched Claire fight that miscarriage Mm. every single second and Sean's performance is so extraordinary because it's at the same time really funny as well as being really heartbreaking that moment that she does it but you see the fight you see the struggle like this will not take over my evening. Yeah, it was the first point. This will not take over. This will not ruin their evening. This is going to be something that I'm going to package and deal with later. And then it's Freebag saying, no, we've got to go now, 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 now. And having someone force her to. And then she's like, OK, fine. And she knows she's not going to. In that moment, she sits down. She's Because then her life will become defined or that evening will become defined by her and her, inverted commas, failure or drama around that night. And knowing that that was actually where the strength of those characters lay in the pain that they have and the energy that they put into fighting it.
0: Mm. It's an incredible scene. Feel free to use anything I've ever told you. (laughs) If you're going to do something (laughs) that brilliant with it, uh, I mean, what a scene. I'm just aware that I could talk to you for days on end, and we haven't got on to your third failure, but but luckily it's less profound. So your third failure is your failure to tidy your room. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I said that kind of
1: as a joke when we were first talking about it, but really it goes into like a deeper, it's like a much deeper thing, which is, I'm quite disorganised um, and I think that is just a daily failure. Like in terms of like there's all the profound failures that we've been talking about but like you're, I mean, look at this place, this is so neat. Are you tidied case. up before
0: you came? Did you? T- <laughs> I mean
1: there was a stack of books there that I removed but I, I want to know how much people tidy up before people come round because I'm always, everything else in, in my house is yeah. tidy. So like the downstairs is tidy, the bathroom's tidy but my room is just, I don't know what it is. I'll tidy it all the time and then it just instantly gets really messy again and I can't think while I've got this like really messy room but at the same time I always have a messy room so it's just this like vicious cycle and I know about the whole Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo thing. Yeah. And I'm scared of that book. Me too. Because I have a feeling it might change my life. But I know, also know I'm going to fail at that book instantly.
0: Basically, the equivalent of your bedroom is my sock drawer. So my sock drawer is just where all the chaos goes. <laughs> like, you don't sit No. Yeah, and I just like, even the idea of going through each of my socks, being like, does this sock spark joy? I'm like, I just can't... <laughs> I
1: can't. But yeah, tidying my room, just getting it together. But also I had left, you know, I'd moved into this house and I'm like renting a house that had loads of stuff in it when I got there. So it wasn't actually room for my stuff to go in there because it's all been done really nicely and it's kind of basically somebody else's house
0: that we're living in, me and my sister.
1: And so I do have a whole house worth of stuff in my bedroom.
0: Okay, that, yeah. And also your untidiness, I mean, is it gross? Like, do you have mouldy plates of food? No, oh God, No.
1: no, it's not dirty. okay. It's not dirty. It's just, I'm really good at like piles. Yeah. So there'll be like neat piles, but all the way around my room. So I've got inexplicable piles of clothes, really neatly folded and everything, but like six of them at the end of my bed. Yeah. Because there isn't any room in the cupboard at the moment.
0: So you must get sent loads of free stuff.
1: Yeah, not loads. And actually have basically ended up saying, I don't want any because I don't know where it goes. But also it's just like when the workload is just so big... I feel like I'm wasting time if I'm tidying my room when I should be writing three scenes. I mean, it sounds so teenage. I'm glad you asked if it was gross, because it's not gross.
0: (laughs) I just like to make that clear.
1: Because I can't deal with gross. It's
0: because you're travelling so much as well. Yeah. The packing and unpacking and...
1: Yeah, there's there's all that. And not being able to throw stuff out. Although I threw three bags of clothes at a charity shop the other day. (laughs)
0: But I, I got three massive. What is vintage? the address of that charity shop? Because people will be <laughs> rushing that note. Don't you? Actually, it's, they're
1: brilliant. They're called I Collect, so They just come and pick it up.
0: They are brilliant, and I have used a similar service.
1: Yeah. They're really good. But that was like three or four, in this but I feel like there's been no dent in my wardrobe. I don't know. I think you know when I just want to start all over again. There's a brilliant. Have you seen that play, The Encounter? Simon McBurney's played The Encounter, and he he goes to um, Amazonian Tribe. I think it's Amazonian Tribe that no one has ever heard about, but they have this one ritual, which is every single year, everybody in the tribe has to burn everything they own, and you just start again. So everyone starts again every year. Oh, my God,
0: I'd love that. Well, I had a similar thing. I mean, not quite that drastic, (laughs) but when I got divorced and I moved out of our shared home, and I did that in a way that I was like, I just wasn't thinking straight and i also didn't want to take anything that wasn't just mine and i ended up with like two cases of stuff and that was it and it was really untethering but it was because of that extremely liberating and i realized that i didn't need that much and actually moving into this flat that we're talking in now was a really good discipline for me because it's so small having said that i do have a storage unit that i pay ridiculous do amount you? yeah <gasps> That makes Does that make sense. you feel better? It's also, also so organised to get a storage <laughs> unit. Sometimes I'm like, the amount I pay for storage, I should just live in the storage unit. You've <laughs> <laughs> probably got some really lovely <laughs> things in there. That's um, much- Phoebe, the last time you came on this podcast, you told me an anecdote about Meryl Streep and Apple Crumble mm. that went viral, <laughs> and people loved it. And if you haven't heard it, do go back and listen to the first ever episode in season one. Have you seen Meryl Streep since?
1: No. Meza. I can't wait. I
0: hope one day I will.
1: I hope one day.
0: No, I haven't. Have you eaten Apple Crumble since? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and who is the most exciting famous person you've met in the last 12 months?
1: Well, Hillary Clinton came to see Fleabag. That was pretty cool. I mean, the thing in New York is that all like famous people go to theatre in New York, they just go in a way that I don't know if they do anywhere else in the world. So, so the, we'd always get a little list after Fleabag of the people who were coming in I mean Nicole Kidman came to see Fleabag and then she left me a note afterwards saying I'm sorry um I couldn't hang around had to go back to the kids and that was a massive highlight so I didn't actually meet Nicole but the funny thing was is that they weren't no one's supposed to tell me who's in the show in the audience before the show starts because in case I get nervous that happens at the beginning of the run towards the end of the run I need to know to like get me to show off a bit to get the adrenaline up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like the end of the run, but so I was doing my warm up, and then suddenly there was this like guy in the room, and I was sort of like, oh, I'm doing my warm up. What's going on? And he was like, I'm just, uh, I'm just sweeping the seats for uh, Keith and Nicole, and I was like, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, you're sweeping the seats for like bombs. <laughs> I was like, no one would bomb under Nicole. Come on. But yeah, so they, their security had come in to just check the theater, and that's how I knew that they were in. And it was the night that I did give it a little bit.
0: A little bit extra. A little bit more pizzazz. I did. I totally um, did. I then interviewed Nicole Kidman for the second time over the phone and I'm obsessed with her. I think she's an amazing woman. And she said that she had seen Fleabag and it blew her mind and she gave me a message to pass on to you. So she's left you loads of messages. Full, full circle. Hard on Nicole. I and mean, the fact that she'd come to the play was big. She was a biggie. Okay. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I love and adore you and now so does everyone else. <laughs> thank you so so much for coming back on this podcast to mark a year since we started
1: thank you for having
0: me congratulations on the podcast jesus christ
1: <laughs> congratulations
0: on your creation of art and the book and, and your art <laughs> fuck
1: off <laughs> fuck off
0: <laughs>